Nobody who has sincerely read the Bible, especially the New Testament, should have any doubt about who Jesus Christ is. The Apostle John took great care in revealing truth concerning the, the identity of the Lord Jesus, and he has permanently recorded for us several occasions where Jesus identified himself through the statement, I am, and then adding to that a revelation of his essence, his character, or his works. And either he was telling the truth about himself, or he was lying. Or he thought he was someone that he was not, which means he was demented. And of course, the Lord Jesus calls for us to believe, uh, to exercise faith in his words, in his character, and in his works. In our monthly communion observances, we've studied a number of these statements of the Lord Jesus. Uh, He has identified himself so far as the great I Am, or Yahweh of the Old Testament, the self-existing one who becomes in grace everything that his people need. The Jews recognized that title as the same title as the covenant God of the Old Testament. Jesus also identified himself metaphorically in a number of ways, such as the living bread, the light of the world, the door of the sheepfold, and the good shepherd of the sheep. And as such, he supplies our, our spiritual sustenance. He illuminates us to the truth of salvation. He provides for and protects those who believe in him. And of course, he laid down his life in order that we might be saved and receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This morning, we come to another well-known statement of the Lord Jesus Christ in John's Gospel, chapter 14, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And this comes in answer to a question uh, posed by Thomas, and likely in the minds of all the disciples that evening as they gathered with the Lord Jesus for the Last Supper. They're perplexed by some things that he had to say, and they're unsure as to their meaning. And the Lord has said he's going away, that where he's going, they cannot come, but they know the way. And Thomas retorts, well, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. So Jesus begins to divulge important truths that will encourage his disciples and prepare them for a new life of ministry as he returns to heaven. So we're first going to be reminded of the background and the context of this statement, and then four encouragements of Jesus that result from it. To his dismayed disciples, Jesus says, exercise your faith in me, in verse 1. Then he says, realize your hope in me, in verses 2 through 4. In verses 5 through 11, he says, understand who I am. And finally, in verses 12 through 14, He's saying, anticipate my promises. And these words still encourage us today. So let's ask God's word uh, to be blessed as it's preached this morning. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we are thankful (coughs) that your word is truth. We're thankful that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God in flesh, 
in whom we can put our complete faith and trust. We're thankful, Lord, that there is a way into heaven, not a way that we find ourselves, but a way that Christ provided for us. And we're thankful, Lord, that because he is the truth, he is also the life. And through him, we uh, obtain the blessing of eternal life. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged, even as the disciples were back in that day, to uh, further your work and your ministry here through the power of your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, first of all this morning, let's take a look at the, the circumstances that lead up to these encouragements of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the evening of the last Passover that Jesus will uh, share with his disciples. And we need to back up a couple of chapters to see how we got here. First of all, back in chapter 11, his last marvelous work had been the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And for sure, uh, that woke up a lot of people because that's something uh, that is totally unusual and uh, we don't even find many examples of it in the scriptures. But that event spurred the plot uh, among the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus. Then we come to chapter 12, and here we see the Lord Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem for the last time on earth. This is Palm Sunday, and you remember that he was met with great praise great admiration. Everybody sought to see him and to hear him. And through the week, he is teaching every day in the temple, and we find his concluding remarks in chapter 12, verses 44 to 46. So let's take a look at those. Then Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. That would be God the Father. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. So he's kind of summing things up here. From that point, we move forward to his teaching specifically to his disciples at the Last Supper. And this is uh, beginning at verse 13. It runs all the way through chapter 17 of John's gospel. So what has transpired to cause the disciples this consternation, this perplexity, this dismay, as Jesus begins chapter 14 with, let not your heart be troubled. We go back to chapter 13. What does Jesus do? The first thing he does after supper is he washes the disciples' feet, something they do not understand, and at first some of them object to it. And it's a lesson to them as to how they are to treat each other from this time moving forward. Then we're told that Jesus, being troubled in spirit, uh, divulges to them that there is someone at the table who's going to betray him, someone who is going to give him up to the Jewish leaders. And of course, we know that person is Judas, but they don't know uh, right away who it is. Uh, Things aren't clicking with them. Then we see in verse 33 that Jesus says he's only going to be with them a little while longer 
and then he's, uh, he's going away, and where he is going, they cannot yet come. And finally, Peter, in verse 36, asks, Lord, where are you going? And then he makes this statement uh, in verse 37, I will lay down my life for you. And in response to that, Jesus says, well, actually, you're going to deny me three times before uh, the cock crows twice. So, as they heard these things and saw these events, who among them would not start to be feeling a little agitated, a little troubled? And when Jesus uses that word trouble, uh, it's the same word that in verse 21 of chapter 13, used of Jesus. He was troubled in spirit. He testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So it's the same word. What does that mean? Well, it means that you are inwardly agitated. You're anxious about something. You're distressed about something. It identifies inward commotion as opposed to a normal state of calmness of mind. And the disciples, of course, had good reason to feel the way that they were feeling. They were troubled that one of them could stoop to betraying the Lord Jesus. They were perplexed as to where Jesus was going and why they would not be able to be with him. Uh, They were probably amazed that Jesus said Peter was going to deny him. He's the outspoken leader of the band. So this is going through their mind. Furthermore, Jesus knows that their dismay is going to increase in just a few hours when he's arrested, when he is tried, and finally when he's crucified. So he needed to assure them and encourage them to keep on trusting even though strange things were happening. And we too are often distressed in life. We all have experienced doubts and fears about the future. Uh, We face tests of our faith. We're perplexed in various situations. And so the way Jesus encourages his disciples back then helps us today as well. So let's look at these ways that Christ encourages his dismayed disciples. And he's knowing what's going on. And the first thing he says in verse uh, chapter 14 is, let not your heart be troubled. Don't allow your hearts to be troubled. So he's saying to them, keep on exercising your faith in me. Keep on trusting me. And as we've shown, they had much reason to be anxious and upset. What were they going to do when Jesus went someplace they could not go? How were they going to move forward? They have already sacrificed everything to follow him. So now what? So his words take the force of stop being troubled. And the way to stop is by exercising your faith. He goes on to say, you believe in God, believe also in me. Now, those two statements can be taken taken as a statement, or as a commandment. And most expositors take them as commands. So what Jesus would be saying here is, uh, believe in God, but believe also in me. 
And there was no question that these men believed in God. They were faithful Jewish people. They believed the Old Testament scriptures. There was no doubt in their minds as to uh, who God was and uh, their desire to follow God. Uh, They also had expressed their faith in Jesus. Back in Matthew 16, uh, Peter made the statement that he is the Son of God, and they all agreed with that. So they're placing their faith in the Lord Jesus. But now their faith has been seriously tested. Someone is betraying the Lord. Someone else is going to deny him. And all of them, in just a little while, are going to flee him when, uh, uh, in the garden when the guards come and they take the Lord Jesus. And then, shortly after that, they're going to see him hanging on a tree like an accursed person. So they need to keep trusting through these trying hours. Jesus said to them, despite what you are thinking, what you are feeling, and of course, what you're shortly going to experience, keep on believing in the purpose of God. Keep on believing what you know about me, what you've heard me say, what you've heard me preach, what you've seen me do. Don't lose your faith in these trying hours. And this is what all disciples need to do in their darkest hour of despair when faith is being tried. And unfortunately, we have a tendency to forget our faith and just look at the circumstances. And faith goes flying away. Instead of bolstering us and anchoring us, it seems to to not be found at all. So we need to keep on believing in spite of what we may be experiencing that might cause us to question or doubt our faith or cause that faith to fail. Now, the second thing that Jesus encourages them with is that you should realize your hope, and he's going to give them uh, that hope in the next couple of verses. The reason for his departure is to prepare for them a heavenly dwelling place. Now he says, in my father's house are many mansions. When Jesus speaks of my father's house, something that would immediately come to mind would be the temple. That was the earthly abiding place in the minds of Jewish people that God was present with them. So that could be uh, in their minds as he said this. But of course, we know Jesus is talking beyond that to an eternal home, a heavenly home that we call uh, the household of God. And in this place, he says, there are many uh, mansions. Now, the word mansion is actually translated from the Latin And the Greek term means a place to dwell, a dwelling place. And it alludes to a place large enough to accommodate many dwellings. Maybe this was in the mind of the the translators of the Vulgate. A mansion is a really huge building. It has lots of rooms in it. So it might be that's what they were thinking about. Because if every one of us, when we get to heaven, lives by him or herself in a great big huge mansion someplace, we're all going to be separated. We're not going to be together. The idea is a place large enough for all of us to dwell together with God for all of eternity. 
So it carries the sense of family, the sense of home, a sense of a permanence, and a sense of there being room enough for everyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it's billions of souls. Now, he says, if this wasn't the truth, then I would have told you differently. And of course, he's going to say later on, he is the truth. So he can't be lying about this. He's divulging to them something that will give them hope in the future. And he's going to this place. uh, 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 He says, I go or I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, This does not mean as many folks think, that Jesus is going to heaven uh, to make all those mansions, to build all those mansions, or to build the heavenly Jerusalem, and it's taking him thousands of years to do that. That's not what it means. I believe what it means here is that his departure is going to the cross, and through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, he will have prepared a place for all of us in the future. So the work of atonement is what he has in mind. He has to go out of this world. He has to go through the next few hours of suffering in order to prepare for us a heavenly home where we can all dwell together. So it's his work at Calvary he's focusing on here. That is the necessary preparation for anyone to be able to be with him for all of eternity. Now, in verse 3, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. All right, so what does that mean? Well, Jesus promises to return to them after he finishes this atoning work. And I take this in kind of a twofold way as encouragement. First of all, when would Jesus return to his disciples? What would be the first aspect of his return? Well, three days later, when he was raised from the dead, and he came into the upper room, and they saw him. That is his first return, and receiving them to himself, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, breathing out the Holy Spirit, then the Spirit comes in power uh, a few days later. So the Lord Jesus is going to come to them uh, in three days after his crucifixion and what a great encouragement and joy that would be to them because he's not dead after all that changes everything and of course he says i will come again receive you to myself that where i am there you may be also so where is he going to be well first of all before he ascends to heaven wherever he is He's going to be with the disciples and they're going to be with him. How is that possible? It's possible through the Holy Spirit who will come after he ascends into heaven. So there is a sense in which Christ is with us all the time. We're not waiting sometime in the future to be with him. There is a sense in which he is with us now. Now wherever we go, that's where he is and that's where we are. But of course, we have to extend that out 
to the future place where all of us are going to be and where uh, he is going to be is in heaven as he ascends 40 days later and sits at the right hand of God. That's the final destination. That's where we're going to be in the future. And as he prepares the way to be there, eventually that's where we're all going to be together. And then he makes this statement, and where I go you know. And the way you know. Well, that poses a problem. At least in the mind of Thomas. And perhaps in the mind of the other disciples. So, uh, Jesus says, you know where I'm going, you know the way. Well, in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Now, Thomas was like that. Uh, He just blurted things out. We call him Doubting Thomas, but don't you think the other disciples were thinking the same thing? He was just bold enough to come out and actually say it to the Lord. Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? So in his dismay, he's not thinking about what Jesus has taught, and actually what he just said, that he's going to prepare a place for them. And he and the other were still caught up in that preconceived notion of the messianic mission. And they believed that Jesus was the king who came into the world to usher in a new and glorious Israel. He was going to be an earthly king right here, right now. This doesn't fit the plan, so we don't know what you're talking about. But Jesus had been telling them over and over and over, I have to return to my father from which I came. And for the last six months, he's been saying, I am going to be delivered up to the authorities. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to die but I'm going to be raised the third day, and it over their heads every time. They didn't grasp it. They couldn't grasp it. So that truth never sinks in until after the events actually take place. So Jesus says, all right, this is the hope you have. Even though I'm going away, I'm actually going to be with you, and eventually we're all going to be together for all of eternity. And that, that's a hope that we have as well today. That no matter what may happen to us, we have the hope of eternal life. And so when we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, we're immediately going to be on the other side. Now, he also, at this point, expands uh, the idea of, again, understanding who he is. So he wants them to, again, understand exactly who I am, and he explains or or gives a a metaphor of who he is. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, I am the way. There's a lot of confusion today about the way to heaven and to eternal life. We have a new neighbor, and I've been able to talk to him a little bit. I found out that he majored in religious studies in college. And consequently, I said to him, well, I guess that made you uh, choose not to be involved in any religion. And he said, pretty much. And in his view, the the religions all kind of teach the same thing uh, anyways, because, you know, 
they're all saying there's some kind of a God and, and you're going to get there by a certain pathway. And his conclusion is that, well, just trying to be a good person, you'll be all right. But that's not what Jesus said. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus says, I am not a way, but the definite way, the only way you can get to the Father is through me. And the Jews would understand this. They understood much of what the way entailed because it's in the Old Testament. Moses said, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you in Deuteronomy 5. Furthermore, he said later, I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And then Isaiah says, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. So there was a way that they were familiar with. And the Lord Jesus now says to them, I am the way. William Barclay had an interesting illustration. And he says, suppose we're in a strange town and we ask for directions. Suppose a person asks, take the first to the right and the second to the left. Cross the square, go past the church. Take the third on the right and the road you want is a fourth on the left. Chances are, before you get halfway there, you're going to be lost. But suppose the person says, come, I'll take you there. In that case, the person to us is the way, and we can't miss it. And that is what Jesus does for us. He does not only give advice and direction, he takes us by the hand, he leads us, and he strengthens us and guides us personally every day. He does not tell us about the way, he is the way. Then he says that I also am the truth. Well, you know as well as I do today that truth has devolved into the place of unreality. Everybody makes their own reality, and everybody's perceptions are not based on what is true and real and genuine. For instance, if a man wants to be a woman, he can identify that way. He can go through all kinds of operations to change, but the truth is he will never be a woman. It's impossible. But in your mind, you are, and that's all that matters. Now, Jesus is the embodiment of what is real and genuine and true. What he says is true. His words are true. What he did was real and true. And uh, Barclay makes another observation here that I thought was very good. Moral truth cannot be conveyed solely in words. It must be conveyed in example. No teacher has ever embodied the truth he taught except Jesus. Many men could say, I've taught you the truth. Only Jesus could say, I am the truth. The tremendous thing about Jesus is not simply that the statement of moral perfection finds its peak in him, it is the fact of moral perfection finds its realization in him. So he's the truth that we must believe in and trust. And finally, he says, I'm also the life. And uh, we've talked about this. Many people search for meaning in life. What will make their life satisfying? What will make their life full? 
Many are concerned with life beyond the material, life beyond the grave, wondering if there's some other kind of life. But Jesus provides for us not merely physical life. He provides eternal life to those who put their faith and trust in him. And he has shown the way to life eternal. And he will prove its reality when he is resurrected from the dead and he ascends into heaven. So the disciples need to hold on to these truths when they behold the way hanging on a cross. The truth being nailed there through the lies and falsehoods of humanity. And then the life being taken down lifeless from the cross. And they also need to believe in the unique union of the Father and the Son that Jesus has been teaching them. And he again relates this in verses 7 through 12. Now, in verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. So Jesus reveals to his disciples, uh, uh, they still don't know him as they ought to know him. They should have known the purpose of the Father in sending the Son in his eventual death and resurrection. And all this has been escaping them. They could not get beyond their hopes of that earthly kingdom. But Jesus assures them that they will know him now in a different way. And this leads to a request by Philip that, again, divulges a uh, misconception about Jesus and the Father when he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Well, what did he want? He wanted some kind of a manifestation of God the Father that would assure them of all these truths that Jesus was speaking. However, what that really was showing was his lack of faith and understanding. Because Jesus just said back in chapter 13, as they, he was uh, talking to them in the upper room, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So there needed not to be any other manifestations. The truth is that if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the truest manifestation of the Father that you humanly could. And Jesus has spoken the words of the Father. Look what he says. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? I'm showing you the Father in everything I say, everything I do, every way I act. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. So he's saying... The words that I'm talking to you, these are words from God. These are words from the Father. We're so united. uh, We're so in union with each other. We're in such agreement that what we're saying is the same thing. Then he goes on to say, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. So God the Father is behind the words, and he's behind the works. What works? The works of uh, uh, miracles. Uh, the works of character. It's God the Father in Christ that these things are being displayed. And he said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, that indissoluble 
union, or else at least believe me for the sake of the works. So you have the words of Christ, you have the works of Christ. Those two things are saying the same thing. You need to believe them both, but if you can't take in the words yet, at least, you know, take cognizance of the works that I've done. That should be enough to convince you that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the character of the Father. You've heard the words of the Father. You've seen the miracles of the Father. And so that is proof to you that I am manifesting to you who the Father is. It takes faith to uh, believe these revelations. And that God and Christ are in perfect harmony And that Jesus is the perfect portrayal of God in the life of man and man in the life of God. So Jesus is the way to God. He's the truth we must hold on to despite all the untruth and unreality and falsehood going on out there in the world. And he is a life in the church we will live forever no matter what we may be enduring. Now, the last thing that Jesus mentions here that is an encouragement and will be in the future to his disciples is found in verses 12 through 14. And Jesus continues with two promises that should be encouraging. First of all, he says in verse 12, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, and notice the number of times he's saying believe. Think of six times he mentions here. Have faith, believe. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Okay, so those who believe in Christ are going to carry on the work of Christ. He doesn't have to be with them physically in order to do this. They will do the work that he does. The apostles will go on, they will preach the same message. They would be gifted to do miracles. They would carry on the mission of Jesus. But then Jesus says, they'll do even greater works. Well, how is that possible? Well, first of all, he will send the Holy Spirit to them. They're mere men. They're not God the Son. But through the Holy Spirit, they'll be able to do these works that Jesus does. But what about the greater work? I think that relates to the scope of the ministry. Do you realize that Jesus only ministered in a very small area of the world about the size of New Jersey? He ministered to Judea, Galilee, and the Decapolis. Now, he spoke to thousands of people, but by the time the day of Pentecost came, how many disciples were gathered together waiting for? Only 120 But on that day when the Holy Spirit came, 3,000 souls were saved. So Jesus' earthly ministry doesn't reach that many people with the truth. Most of them didn't believe in him. But that all changed on the day of Pentecost. And within a few decades, uh, much of the world controlled by the Roman Empire would hear the gospel. Even the emperor of Rome would hear of it. So the promise still holds today. Today the church is reaching an audience that exceeds the time of Jesus' ministry, uh, manifold times. 
There's a witness in every country of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so that is how our works is greater than his because it expands upon it throughout the whole world. Then we have the last assurance, and that is the assurance of answered prayer. Look at verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, of course, we have to qualify that statement, don't we? We have to ask in Jesus' name. We have to ask according to his will and his purposes. Jesus is going to be going back to heaven, and he is going to intercede for his disciples uh, from heaven. So anything that they ask in his name will be given to them. So more than anyone, these disciples knew what that name was all about. Again, they heard his preaching and teaching. They saw his perfections. They saw him go to pray. They witnessed his miracles. So to ask in his name would mean asking according to his example, his life, and his will. And there could be no selfishness in that type of praying. And note that the purpose is to glorify the Father through the Son. So all prayer is really to somehow be related to glorifying God, not self. If there's anything that should encourage us in ministry today, it's to know that we can pray to the Lord and receive answers to those prayers, especially when they're ministry-related. And since Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we have all the assurance we need to help us in times of anxiety and stress or any other difficult life, uh, difficulty life may bring to us. So hopefully these thoughts and this truth in his statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, will encourage us today to uh, live for him, uh, to share the way to proclaim the truth and the life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful today for who Jesus is, for all that he's done to prepare a place for us for eternity, and also uh, how he would operate and minister through us after he went back to heaven. May we be encouraged by these thoughts today as we're again reminded of his death and resurrection at the table of communion. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
to provide that place in heaven that he promised in John 14. So as we come before his table today, uh, let's be thankful for all he's done for us. Let's be thankful that no matter what we may experience in this life, uh, that we have a place that we're going to, 